You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. I want to ask you to stand as, as we read God's Word, just because that of what is revealed to us in these opening verses. So I want to ask you to remain standing while we, while we read the verses. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Whether you have your open Bible or on the screen or looking at an app, just kind of read along with me. You don't have to do it out loud, or you can if you like. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Father, we bow in this moment and we recognize the power and authority of your word. It is perfect and pure. It has no errors in it. And Father, it is meant to change our life from the inside out. So Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart, even down to the motivations of our heart, may they be acceptable to you this morning. Our King, our Lord, our soon coming Savior. We pray this in his name and all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. As I've shared with you before, I, I like to hike and uh, I like to go to the mountains and I like to spend time in the woods. And one of the things that hikers and mountain climbers often have to deal with is something called a false summit. Now, let me explain what that is. Your eyes will play tricks on you especially when you're trying to walk up a steep mountainside, and your eyes will tell you that the summit is just right ahead of you, that just a few more steps, just a few more hard climbs up the mountain, that the summit is right there. And then when you get to where your eyes are looking, you get there only to find out that that's not the summit at all. There's a whole nother distance you have to climb before you get to the actual summit. And even sometimes then, that's not the real summit. There's a trail that I like to hike at Grandfather Mountain. If you've been to Boone or Blowing Rock, you're probably familiar with Grandfather. Maybe you're familiar with the, the touristy side of Grandfather, which is where you drive up the mountain and you go see the, the mile-high swinging bridge. I say mile-high because people go up there thinking that they're going to be able to look off the bridge and see down a mile. You get up there, and I don't want to give this away, but I guess I'm getting ready to. You look off, the bridge is only a couple of hundred feet off the ground. It's like, wait a minute. I thought this was a mile-high bridge. Well, technically it is. You just don't get to see the whole mile down to the, the bottom of the mountain. On the, that's on the south side of Grandfather Mountain. On the north side is a trail system called the Grandfather Profile Trail. And it, 
It takes you all the way to the very top of the mountain. And by the way, where grandfather is is not the top. There's another peak called Callaway Peak that is even higher than where you are at the bridge. So this trail brings you up the north side of the mountain. And the first time that I hiked it, first of all, I didn't realize how steep it was. I, I come to realize that this is what I call the stairway to heaven. Because what you have is 3,000 plus feet of elevation and about two miles. Now you do the math. It's steep. It's really steep. And what they've done to help you get up this is they've basically built steps into the mountain with rocks. So I'm carrying about a 20, 25 pound pack. And I'm thinking about a third way in this. What have I got myself into? Because I'm spending the night on the mountain. Got all my stuff in my backpack. And I'm looking up. I'm going, all right, there's the peak. There's the summit. Great. I only have a little bit of we're climbing to go. So I keep hoofing it and keep going. And I get to that point, I realize this isn't the summit. I got a whole nother staircase to climb. So then I climb that one thinking I see the top and three miles is a long three miles when it's all uphill. Okay. Can we just all agree to that? And so now I see, ah, oh, this has got to be the summit. And over and over again, I keep thinking I've gotten to the summit when in fact I haven't. Now I'll tell you, as I've climbed that trail several times now, there's been a whole lot of people when they get to that false summit and they think they've only got a little distance to go, never go any further. In other words, they set out that morning to go to the top of Callaway Peak, which is at about 5,900 feet. But they, they get to that place where they think this is the summit and they're so disappointed and their legs are tired and they're thinking they don't have enough time. They just turn around. I've met a lot of people coming down the mountain as I'm going up who've just given up. Now, what has this got to do with the revelation of Jesus? Let me tell you what it has to do with it. Some of you have gotten very satisfied with what you know about Jesus, and you've come to the point where you think you got all that there is to know about Jesus, and can I tell you, you've arrived at a false summit. There's a whole mountain of beauty. There's a whole mountain of power. There's a whole mountain of absolute God's sovereignty in the person of Jesus, and you can spend your entire life, a hundred years times a hundred years times a hundred years, studying the man Jesus Christ, and you will never come to the depths of who he is. But some of you have gotten satisfied with just knowing a few parables. Well, that Sermon on the Mount was pretty cool. Hey, he healed that leper guy, and he healed, he called Lazarus out of the tomb. We've just gotten kind of accustomed to this false summit. We think we've kind of arrived. I'm not saying you're arrogant and prideful. I'm just saying we get complacent. Uh, it, it, would be like, it would be like spending all of your money to go to Disney World. And you spend a lot to go to Disney World. You got your tickets in your pocket, but you go there with your kids. You get out of the car you take a look at the parking lot and go, okay, kids, we've came and we've seen it all. Let's get back in the car and go home. You have some very upset kids. Because just in the distance, you see all the rides, you hear the noises, you can even smell the smells. But, oh, no, kids, the parking lot is just good enough. You win tickets to the Super Bowl. And all the hype that is the Super Bowl, you decide to stay out on the concourse and never enter the stadium. I'm afraid that some of us in our walk with Jesus have just gotten satisfied with the Jesus that we think we know. And I think the problem is, is that the Jesus we think we know is not the Jesus of Scripture. The, the, the Jesus that we think we, we know all the aspects of Jesus, come to find out when you begin to compare the Jesus that you, you think you know to the Jesus that we see in Scripture, we see a big divide here, folks. It's because we've gotten... Well, happy with a summit that is no summit 
at all. We've stopped climbing. We've stopped wondering. We've stopped loving. We've stopped digging. We've stopped seeking. We've stopped asking. We've stopped walking. We've, we've stopped being curious about this man named Jesus. And quite frankly, there's no other man, no other man in history that should stir up more curiosity in us than the man who laid down his life and then resurrected three days later. I wonder if the Jesus that we have in our mind because we've stopped seeking him out is a Jesus that we can kind of keep contained in a little box. If the Jesus that, we've, that we think we know is simply the Jesus that we're most comfortable with, The book of Revelation is written to us to shatter every bit of that. The, the, the book of Revelation is, is meant to take us to the Mount Everest of who Jesus is, and then Mount Everest is not enough. I've read many accounts of people who finally summit Mount Everest, and they look around, and you know what they realize? First of all, they realize how small they are. Second, they realize how many more mountains there are that they will never climb. That's just as beautiful and just as grandeur as as ever. So that's what I hope for the next few weeks, is that we, we scale a mountain together, and as we do, we look around, and we see the grandeur, the beauty, the power of this man named Jesus, and all that he's going to accomplish, and all that he's going to do. I believe there's vast portions of undiscovered truth. I believe there's a whole mountain here that we haven't even begun to climb. I believe we've snorkeled in the shallows of the ocean with Jesus in the, in the shallow water. And we're telling people we know what the ocean is like when we've never even been out of the surf. Do I have your attention yet? I hope so. Here we have in this book, in the very opening verses, well, the revelation of Jesus. Taylor just told you that that word revelation means to unveil. To unveil. We're going to see the unveiling of Christ over the next many weeks. Verse 19, I want to bring your attention to verse 19. If you want to know kind of an outline of where we're going, verse 19 provides that outline. Look at, look at verse 19 in chapter 1. This is Jesus speaking to John. Now, we'll cover this text next week, but I just want to draw your attention to it now. Verse 19, Jesus says to John, write, therefore, the things that you have seen. All right, so the first aspect of what Jesus says to John is, John, write down what you've seen. So what is John, what has he seen? This is the, the past tense, John. What have you seen? Write those things down. What, what have you experienced with Jesus? What do you know about Jesus in those three and a half years that you walked with him? Chapter one is really John writing down what he's seen. Next week, we'll look a little bit more as he sees Jesus in all of his power and glory. So the first aspect, this week, next week, we're going to look at what John wrote down about what he had seen, past tense. But notice what else Jesus says to John. He says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are. In other words, John, you're also going to write another portion, the things that are. Right then, in the present, what is going on? Well, there is seven little churches in a place called Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire. John is writing to those seven churches. That's what this letter is about. So he's going to write to those seven churches, that which is, that which John is suffering, that which those churches are facing in this time in history, John, I want you to write those things down. And of course, that's going to be chapters two and three. 
But then the thing that most people are caught up in when we talk about the book of Revelation is this next part. He says, right, therefore, the things that you have seen, past tense, the things that are present tense, and the things that will take place after this, the future. And that's why we're all engrossed with the book of Revelation. I want to know, I want to know, hey, pastor, tell me. I know you're going to tell me over the next few weeks. Who's the Antichrist? Hey, pastor, I know you're going to tell me when the rapture is going to occur. Hey, pastor, I know you're going to tell me when the second coming is going to come. I'm, I'm here to tell you. I'm just going to go ahead and pop that balloon right now. That ain't happening. You know why that ain't happening? That's bad English, I know because the Bible doesn't say it. I'm here to rightly divide God's word, to correctly interpret it so that you and I can learn together. If the Bible doesn't say it, I'm not saying it. That makes sense? So I'm not making any predictions for you over the next few weeks, and well, if that kind of deflates you, then better to do that now than later, right? So the things that are and the things that will take place after this. So that's, by the way, that's chapters 4 through 22. And yes, the, the Bible does speak. Revelation does speak to the future. So let's jump into the text here and let's, let's begin to look for this new summit as John begins to lay it out for us. Look at verse 1. The revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So get this, this is what's happening. So at the very opening of this letter, we have something very unique with this. We have God revealing to us how this letter, this book we know to be Revelation came to be. So the first part of it is God says that he gives Jesus the revelation. The unveiling. Now, Jesus, obviously part of the Godhead Trinity, is part of this process. But what God reveals through John here is that, that God gives to Jesus the full plan that we need to know about of how the kingdom is going to come to full fruition. So he gives that to Jesus. So then what does Jesus do? Jesus gives that to an angel. The angel comes and gives it to John. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see how John is taken into the throne room of God. He's He's been shown things that just blow his mind. That's quite frankly, he has a hard time describing. So therefore, he uses a lot of symbolism. And it's really steeped in Old Testament. So God gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives it to the angel. The angel comes to John, delivers to John that which he wants to be written down to you and I. Who is it meant for? The servants. What service? Just the service of John's day? The servants in these seven churches? No, Every single disciple of Jesus Christ needs to know what is in the pages of this particular book. This book is a difficult book because not only is it a letter, but it's also what we call apocalyptic. It's very strange symbolism that we're going to have to wrestle with in the weeks ahead. But not only that, it's also prophecy, which means that, yes, it's declaring a message from God to us, but also a message of things yet to come. So that's a prayer request for your pastor as he studies this, because it's hard. It's hard work. John says that what has been given to his servants is the very words of God. Now, that doesn't just count for revelation. That counts for the entire Bible. The Bible you hold are the very words of God to you. 66 books, Genesis to Revelation. You want to know about God? You want to know how he operates in the world? You know who, who he is? You want to know his very essence? Well, 
It's revealed for us right here. You want to know what God's will is for you? It's revealed right here in God's Word. God has spoken. It is written down for us to understand and apply. Notice what he says. He says, he made it known by sending an angel to his servant, John, verse 2, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, here's what John's doing. John's saying, okay, we got the Word from God to Jesus, to the angel, to me, and then I'm giving it to you. But in case you're worried that I may have, well, doctored this up a little bit, or maybe that this came from me, John steps in and says, now, look, I bore witness. In other words, a witness is somebody who saw something, experienced something. Interestingly enough, the Greek word behind witness is actually the word where we get martyr from. We'll talk about that next week. John says, I'm delivering to you what was I received. I'm not adding to it. I'm not taking away. I am a witness to the word of God. And not only that, but I am a witness to the testimony of Christ himself. Remember, John walked with Jesus three and a half years. He was called the beloved disciple by Jesus. John, being out there as a fisherman, called to go fish for men by Jesus, follows, walks away from everything, him and his brother, the sons of thunder, and they follow Jesus for three and a half years. They see Jesus heal broken people. They see Jesus perform miracles. They hear Jesus teach like nobody else taught. And John, John deeply loves the Savior. He says, not only am I delivering to you what was given to me, but I walk with Jesus. I know who he is. For, for a moment in John's time, in his life, John got a front row seat to summoning the greatest mountain that's ever been revealed. He got to walk with Jesus. He was there. He was there when, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. John was there when Jesus turned to the woman with the issue of blood and healed her with one touch of the hem of his garment. John was there. So John says, make no mistake about it. Not only am I delivering to you what I received, but I, am a, I have a front row seat to this man named Jesus and all that I saw and all that he saw and all that we experienced and all that I'm experiencing right now in this, I have delivered to the seven churches. I didn't add to it. I didn't take it away. You can trust what I have given you. But then there's verse three. And this, this verse is so unique to this book. Listen to what it, what it said here. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who keep it and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. This is so unique in, in the book of Revelation compared to all the other books of the Bible. Now, we know as we read Scripture that reading Scripture and obeying Scripture, obeying God's commands, obeying and doing God's will, we know that blessing is connected to that. So obedience equals blessing. We know that. But only here in the book of Revelation, at the very beginning of this, of this incredible letter, we are told that not only by reading it, by reading it aloud, hearing it, that blessing comes with that. So if you want to be blessed, set your family down and read Revelation aloud. I'm just telling you what the text says. I mean, don't look at me like I'm crazy. It says it right here. Blessed is the one who reads, hears, and understands, who keeps what is in it, and then he says this, for the time is near. You back, back up into verse one, one, it says this, things that must soon take place. So in the opening verses of this book, we are warned at the very beginning that something is coming. And it's coming soon. Now you may point to that and go, well, right there, well, obviously the Bible can't be believed. Maybe you're skeptical. 
Some of you are secretly skeptical, right? You, you keep your skepticism to yourself. And on the inside of you, you don't say it out loud because you don't want to be seen as a skeptic, right? So you keep it to yourself, but on the inside, you say, well, right there, that's obvious that, that God's word can't be trusted because it's been, what, 2,000 years? John's on the Isle of Patmos. John has been placed there as an old man because of his faith in Jesus. He's there suffering for the cause of Jesus. He was put there by an emperor that we'll talk about in just a minute. He's been put there to die. He's on a barren wasteland of an island that is a prison. He's there dying for the faith. And he says in this moment as he's writing to us that something very soon is coming. Something is very near. Well, obviously it didn't happen. Obviously it hasn't happened. So therefore, should we really trust this? Well, I hear what you're saying, but let me, let me give you a counter to that. We know that, that God, where he dwells, there is no time. In heaven right now, your loved ones aren't looking at their watch. Some of you are thinking, well, isn't it about noon? Not yet. I got a few more minutes, so hold on. They're not looking at a clock in heaven. God isn't bound by time. So, so the idea is, and First Peter writes about this, that with God it's a thousand years and well, the day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. And what that means is, is that in God's mind, the amount of time that has passed since John wrote that down till now is like a blink of your eye. Now, in our perspective, yeah, a couple thousand years. In God's eyes, a blink of an eye. No time at all. And listen, I want you to hear me clearly on this. If, if God tarries another 15,000 years, it doesn't undermine what John has said in this text. That something is coming. You can bank on it. The God, the sovereign God that we see all through the text who released his people from, from Egyptian bondage, the same God who allowed David to become king, the same God who predicted Messiah through the prophets, that same God who is in control of all time and space will fulfill every single promise that we're going to look at in the weeks ahead. Every one of them. Whether it's 10,000 years or 10 days, he's going to fulfill every single part. So the unveiling of Christ, the idea is, is that we're going to see Jesus with fresh eyes. You Every now and then there's these big car shows and these unveilings of cars, right? And I might watch it on YouTube. Maybe Tesla's coming out with a new model or Mercedes-Benz coming out with a new model, right? There's all this buzz about it. Then you, you watch the video and there's the car underneath the sheet, right? And the car's on this turntable turning. And maybe the CEO of the company and maybe the designer of the car will walk up on the stage and they'll grab the sheet and they'll pull it off and everybody goes, ooh and ah. John says that what he's about to write and the blessing that comes with it is that we're going to pull the sheet back on Jesus and who he really is. The Bible is the very words of God to us and they demand a response. What I'm going to ask you to do over the next few weeks, I'm going to ask you to do it today is that if you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you're lost, if you've got religion but you don't have Jesus, I'm going to confront you with the reality of who Jesus is so that you can put your faith in him and have your whole life changed from the inside out. I'm going to confront you with that. Not just today, but in the many weeks ahead. For those of you who are disciples of Jesus, I'm going to confront you with the reality that the Jesus you have in your mind may not be the Jesus of the New Testament. And that maybe, maybe we should fall in love with him all over again. What if you believed what God has revealed? What if, what if we just, what if for a moment, just like with childlike faith, we believe with abandon these first three verses? What if, what if just like a child, we just abandon all that we think we know 
And, and we abandon all of our logical reasoning that the world has kind of crept into our minds. And we, and we just for a moment set all that aside and we just take at base value what these first three verses say to us and we say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start right here. I'm gonna believe those three verses. Well, here's what you believe. First of all, you're gonna believe that Jesus is the way of salvation, that he is the king right here, the testimony of Jesus and all that he saw, it all matters. You're also gonna come to the realization that something is coming. It's literally right on the doorstep then you believe that, that God has spoken and these are his words. So let's move on and let's see what else John has to say. Look at verse four, that John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. Now John is being directed to write these words by God for a very, very specific reason. It's almost as though, and in verses four through eight, we almost have what's called a doxology. We, we, have, we have doctrine that is just thrown in our face, phrase after phrase after phrase, and what does it do? It all points to who Jesus is, the, his power, his beauty, his perfection, his rule, his kingdom. Why is that? Why, why is it in the very opening verses that John is making these statements over and over again. It's because of the audience to whom he's writing and what they're experiencing. There are seven literal churches in this place called Asia Minor. Asia Minor, what we know to be, to be Turkey, is in Asia Minor, we have these seven churches, and these seven churches are in the Roman Empire, and they're under an emperor. And this emperor, I need to tell you a little bit about him. His name is Domitian. Now, Domitian takes power, I think it's about 81 AD, somewhere in there. He's the one that was involved with putting John on the Isle of Patmos. He, he is an interesting character, but before we get to him, we need to back up a little bit. There was a guy by the name of Augustus, Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor of Rome many, many years previous. And it was with Caesar Augustus that Augustus comes out and he says, okay, I'm going to declare myself as God. I am, I am deity, and, and therefore you must reference me as a god. Now, there had been rumblings, and there had been talk in the Roman Empire about the Caesar being God. There were people within the kingdoms that would see Caesar as almost godlike. But Augustus comes out and says, I am God. I am Lord, and I am God. And this begins to set precedence or set a ball rolling in the, in the kingdom of Rome, where other Caesars, when others would come to power, they would either choose to take on that personification or they would not. Augustus, it's interesting that at the very same time Augustus is making those claims, what do we have happening in the same time frame? We have Jesus, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, who is in fact both Lord, God, and human, all in one moment. So you move ahead and some of the emperors after Augustus would, would take on that role as God, some of them would not. But they all enjoy the idea of being God. Then we get to Caligula. And he was the first to enforce worship of the Caesar, to put laws in place. And initially, those laws had to do with the non-Roman citizens, that you had to acknowledge that Caesar is God. 
Then you have a couple of other emperors who are a little bit more lax on it. Then we get to this guy named Domitian. Now, Domitian takes it to a whole new level. He is absolutely obsessed with the idea of people calling him God. So when you would enter his presence, you would have to, you would have to relate to him, you would have to call out to him that Caesar is Lord and God. When you entered any city within the Roman Empire under his reign, any of these cities of the seven churches that we're going to look at in the weeks ahead, when you would enter the city of Ephesus, there would be an altar set up in the entrance of the city, and you would have to burn incense to the emperor because he is Lord and God. You, you go into Thyatira, and you've got a fountain there of water. And if you're going to draw water out of that fountain, you had to acknowledge that he was Lord and God, that the emperor was Lord and God. If, if you went into the marketplace to buy vegetables, when you would buy from that market, you would have to declare that Domitian is ruler, God, and Lord. Do we see a problem now? These seven churches, what have they learned? These seven churches have put their faith in Jesus, and they say that Jesus is Lord and God. So now we have two trains on the train track coming head on towards one another, and make no mistake about it, Domitian will absolutely have a path for you if you decide that Jesus is Lord and God. He will put you to death. And he threatens it all over the Roman Empire. These churches, every single day of their life, the people of these churches, every single day of their life, are having to choose whether they're going to feed their family, whether they're going to be able to earn a living, because earning a living and feeding the family may require them to declare that the emperor is Lord and God, but they can't do that. Jesus Christ is Lord and God, but I've got to feed my family. I've got to earn a living. So these people, every day of their life, are these seven churches, and as we will see, some of them compromised. These people in these churches every day are faced with the reality that they could be put to death by an emperor who's declared himself as God. There were people in the marketplaces just watching as these Christians would come in and they would just listen to see, are they going to acknowledge Caesar as God? And of course, if they didn't, you know what happened. Their name was given to the authorities. Now we begin to understand why in the very opening verses, this letter wrote to these seven churches. What do we hear? We hear this. We hear Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, we hear God who is, who was, and who is to come. God who is eternal. God who is in control. God who never changes. God who was the same five million years ago, and he'll be the same five million years in the future, and he's the same today. He doesn't change. He's not capricious like your emperor is. He's the same all the time. That's the first thing to hear. The second thing to hear is this Man, Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness. What does that mean? He is perfect in his revelation. So if we're unveiling Jesus, what is John saying about Jesus as dictated by God the Father through the angel to John to all of us? First he says, he says that Jesus is perfect in his revelation. Jesus is the faithful witness. What was Jesus a witness of? Well, in Jesus' life, we have the perfect representation of God the Father. So you want to know how God loves? Look at Jesus. Read the Gospels of how Jesus loved the outcast. How Jesus, to the shock of his friends and his disciples, 
would walk up to a leper and put his hands on a leper with abandonment. What does that tell us about God? Well, it tells us that, that no matter what you've got going on in your life, God is not disgusted with you. I run into a lot of people who just think that God is disgusted with them. My goodness, it can be more the opposite. God is deeply, deeply in love with you, and he's, he's desiring that you know him, that, he, that God take you to the, to the Mount Everest of what it means to have purpose in life through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection. So Jesus perfectly reveals the Father, perfectly reveals the plan of salvation, perfectly reveals the love and grace of the Father through his cross, through his love, through his concern, through his leaving the 99 and going for the one. So we have Jesus perfect in his revelation. We have Jesus perfect in his resurrection. Why do, why do these churches need to hear this? Because they're getting inundated every day with Decletion is God. He is Lord. You must, you must lay down to him. But Domitian, the emperor, is the one you worship and serve. John says, Jesus is the faithful witness. But not only that, he is perfect in his resurrection. Jesus has accomplished what no other human being had ever accomplished or will ever accomplish. Jesus Christ dies on a cross. Jesus is stone cold, graveyard, dead. They place him in a tomb. Three days later, he resurrects. No one has ever pulled that off, nor will anyone ever pull that off the way Jesus did. And you may think, well, what about Lazarus? Well, poor old Lazarus had two funerals. <laughs> Man, what a, what a guy, right? He dies. Jesus calls him back to life after his body's rotting in the tomb. Years later, guess what? Lazarus has another funeral. Jesus never has another funeral. Nor will he ever. You see, Domitian, he will die. Caligula died. Augustus died. Hitler died. Pol Pot died. Mao Zedong died. They all died. They all claimed to have some kind of revelation. They all claimed to be God. They all claimed to have power. And they killed people indiscriminately because they believed themselves to be God. This emperor will kill people indiscriminately because he believes that he's God. But make no mistake about it, every one of those people who make the claim, if they can't back that up with a resurrection, they will die, they will bow, they will surrender, they will voice that God is the only God that matters one day. And so will you. So will you. John says that he is perfect in his revelation. He's perfect in his resurrection. He's also perfect in his rule. Notice what he says. He says that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn of the dead, I mean, he is the first one to resurrect from the dead. And look at this, the ruler of kings on earth. You see that word ruler? It means that Jesus Christ is the chief commander. You know, there's a whole lot of people running around. You see them on the news. I'm not naming any of them, but there's a whole lot of them on the news got a camera in their face, and they're claiming all kinds of great things. They're promising you all kinds of great things. They've got money. They've got power. They've got influence. But I'll tell you what they're not. They're not the ruler of this universe. I'll tell you what they don't have. They don't have eternal life in the fact that Jesus Christ resurrected and has ascended at the right hand of the Father to ever be in power. He is the ruler of all kings on earth. Everyone, every king will bow. Every knee will confess. Jesus, whether they believe in him or not, they will meet him face to face one day. And my, my advice to you would be, 
is that you choose to bow now. You choose to surrender now. You choose to acknowledge him now because something is coming. And we're not guaranteed another day. Jesus is the perfect ruler. Not only is that, not only is he perfect in revelation and resurrection and rule, look at this, he's perfect in his rescue of us. To him who loves us, Jesus loves you. He doesn't hate you. He's not disgusted with you. He's not angry with you. He's not mad at you because you made some mistake yesterday or 10 years ago. Jesus loves you. And not only does he love you, but he has the ability to free you from your sins by his blood. That, the blood that we remembered in communion, that blood has the potential that when you place your faith in Jesus, that blood has the potential to finally set you free from your past. That blood has the ability to cleanse you to which God never ever remembers your past against you ever again. God has not ready, God is not ready to just pour wrath out on you. He has provided his son that you may be rescued in this moment. But it requires faith and obedience. Perfect in his rescue. He lived the life we could not. Perfect in all ways. Fulfilled the law completely. He died the death that we should have died. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that, again, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So he died the death that we should have in order to give us salvation that we didn't deserve. What an amazing king who would give that to his subjects and to his servants. So not only is he perfect in his rescue, but look at this, in his reign also. To him who loves us and has freed us by our sins, by his blood, freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, get this. You are made not only holy, you are made righteous, you are made a saint. I know you don't feel like it, I don't either. But the reality is the justification that came in that moment, which means that in that moment, God's wrath turned away from us. The moment we put our faith in Jesus, in that moment, God's wrath turns away. We experience all of the goodness and grace. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But here's the crazy thing. We have been placed into a kingdom, not a kingdom that will soon come, a kingdom that is now. Jesus will not someday reign. He's reigning now. Now, he's going to come back, and he's going to establish everything under his rule. But make no mistake about it, he's calling the shots now. And for all of us who've put our faith in him, we are part of his kingdom, and we are part of a priesthood. We get to declare the truths of God's word. Not just me who's been called to this, but you as well as a follower of Jesus. You are a priest in this priesthood under your Father. And we are to speak the truths and the beauty of God's Word and minister and serve in this kingdom. Perfect in His reign. Perfect in His reign and then perfect in His return. Look at this. It says this, Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I, I was asked at the back door at first, hey, are you, are you pre-trib, post-trib? And I'm like, we'll get to that later. Didn't have enough time today. We'd be here another two hours to get into all that. We will get there, okay? And I'll back all that up with scripture. Here's what you need to know at this point right now. Something is coming. Someone is coming. God in his sovereignty in this moment in the opening of this letter 
who delivered this to Jesus. Jesus delivers it to the angel. The angel delivers it to John. John delivers it to all of us. And what does God want us to know? His son's coming back. You better be ready to meet him. You better be prepared for that. Jesus is going to be perfect. You see that word dominion? It means absolute power. He says that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. What does that mean? Well, the nation of Israel was responsible for putting Jesus on that cross. The nation of Israel was involved in crucifying the very Messiah that they were looking for. And not only were they responsible, but all of those ever since, every Gentile who's born into sin, which is all of us, by the way, we're all responsible for putting him on that cross. It says here that when he returns in power, all those who were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross is going to see him in all of his power and glory. So how does all this turn into a blessing? We just read that hearing it, speaking it, teaching it, obeying it turns into a blessing. Well, the blessing is that you have an opportunity to respond by faith now. You have, the blessing is, is that, that you get to experience Jesus now, be forgiven now, be redeemed now, be set free. Let me ask you a question. What if, what if, on September the 10th, 2001, you had absolute proof that there was going to be a group of terrorists, 19 of them to be exact, who were going to hijack four planes, fly them into two towers, a Pentagon, and into some farmland in Pennsylvania. Let's say on September 10th, you had absolute proof, certainty that that was going to happen the next day. I would dare say you wouldn't just kind of think, well, I'll get to that in a couple of weeks. What if, what if your family member was the one who was working in one of those towers? What if it was your family member that's working in the Pentagon? Or, or maybe one of your family members is getting ready to board a plane. Would you, would you be calling them? Would you be, would you be in their driveway? Would you be at their house doing everything you can to make sure that they didn't get on that plane to walk into those buildings? You certainly would, wouldn't you? Well, guess what? God is revealing something to us, and God took the time to not only reveal it, but to make sure John got it, to make sure that we got it. And all down through history and time, we now have an English translation of what God is up to in time and space. And can I just say to you that what we're going to learn in the book of Revelation, that there is something much worse, astronomically worse, than 9-11, and it's coming. If 9-11 is a drop of water, what we're going to see in Revelation is the ocean. That's how different this is going to be. So God has sent me into your path. God has provided an English translation of the Greek language of what John saw, heard, and experienced so that we can all pause for a moment and take a look at Jesus with fresh eyes. That Jesus, who died on that cross, that same Jesus is coming back with power and authority. Something is coming, folks. And whether it's another 15,000 years, or 24 hours from now, something's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Christian, are you ready? Are you ready, to, are you ready to face a Jesus whom you say you love, but quite frankly, 
You don't care anything about him day to day except on Sunday? Are you ready to, are you ready to face him? Lost person, are you ready to face what's coming? Are you, are you ready? Are you confident in the God that you've put your faith in, God with a little g? Because I'm pretty confident you've got your faith in some little God that means nothing. How, how, how confident are you that that God's going to be able to show up when you need him? If you have any doubts about that, today's the day of salvation. Father in heaven, your word is perfect and pure and clear. And Father, I pray that now in this moment that for those who have never put their faith in you, that Father, in this moment, they would simply admit that they're a sinner, sinner being they rebelled, sinner meaning that they've chose other things to give their life to. In this moment, they would simply admit that they are rebellious, and they, don't, they have not cared in the least about what your demands are for their life. But Father, also that they would admit that Jesus Christ is the righteous. He is the King. He is the one who died on a cross. He is the one who resurrected. And Father, they would be willing to put their faith in that reality. Father, your word tells us that it's faith that brings us from death unto light. I pray that as we worship together in these moments, they'd be willing to put faith in you. Father, for the believers in this room who sometime back had a heart change, but Father, because of busyness and life and problems and valleys, they are really not focused on you at all. In their mind, they've got their ticket to heaven, but they don't have much of anything else. Father, I pray that you would tear the scales off their eyes and let them see you with all of your glory. And in that moment, Father, we'll all become very small. Have your will in your way this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together in this worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.